good to see all of you. Appreciate your being here. Hope you brought your Bibles with you today. I invite you to take them and turn to the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter. If for some reason you were not able to bring your copy of God's Word, there should be one in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from, the New American Standard translation of the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Today's message, which is entitled, The Belt of Truth, is another sermon in our series of following the idea of spiritual warfare. We've already been looking at how the warfare began all the way back to the book of Genesis. The first three chapters of the book of Genesis tell us the story of how God created the world and everything that was in it. And then you come to the third chapter of Genesis and you're introduced to Satan. This is the first time that he makes a, a written appearance in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, where he goes into the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were and tempted them to disobey the Lord. And the scripture says that God told them that they could eat of any and every tree in the Garden of Eden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that they ate that, of, of that fruit, of that tree, they would surely die. And of course, Satan tempted them and uh, Eve uh, yielded and took the forbidden fruit there was nothing, as I reminded you, about the fruit. There was nothing poisonous about it. The fruit probably was very delicious. But it was not the fruit that was the problem. It was the act of disobedience. God said, don't eat of that tree. And when they took of that fruit and ate of it, they disobeyed God, broke his command, opened the door whereby sin came into the world. And then, of course, she gave to Adam, her husband, and he also ate and also through his act of disobedience, brought sin into the world. And then, of course, God uh, uh, had them expelled from the Garden of Eden, and um, uh, the rest is history, as we say. Satan, of course, is the one who's behind all of this. Uh, he is the deceiver. He is the destroyer. It was he, the Bible tells us, who wanted to be God, wanted to be like God. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28 tell of how he coveted the worship that was being given to the Lord by the angels. He said that he wanted to ascend to the mountain, the most high, wanted to sit on God's throne. He wanted to dethrone God. He wanted to be God. And then of course, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that when Satan rebelled, he took a third of the angelic host with him. And so the third of the angelic host are called fallen angels. In the Bible, they're referred to as evil spirits. We also call them demons. You see, although Satan wants to be God, wants to be like God, he cannot be God. God is everywhere. Lucifer is not. That's why he needs his demons, his evil spirits to do his work. The devil cannot be everywhere at the same time. So he probably assigns demons uh, to attack you, to tempt you. We know that there are uh, demons that are over the nations of the world. The 10th chapter of the book of Daniel reminds us of this. You remember in the 10th chapter of Daniel's that uh, Daniel was in prayer. He made a prayer. Uh, he was kneeling when he suddenly found uh, or felt a, a hand tapping on his shoulder. He turned around and it was uh, an angel who said to him, the very second that your prayer was uttered, it reached the throne of God and God dispatched me to come and bring the answer to your prayer. You see, when you pray, you don't have to wait minutes and hours and weeks and days to get an answer. God hears immediately your prayers. So he dispatched this angel, but he says, in the heavenlies, on my way here, I was detained by the prince of Persia. 
We believe that is a reference to a demonic being. And he said that he detained me in bringing the answer to your prayer. And uh, so we were in a struggle, a warfare. And I had to call upon Michael, the archangel, to come to my assistance so that I could be released and come on and with the answer. And uh, so uh, the devil cannot be everywhere. He uses his demons. I think if there was a prince of Persia, then there would be a prince of all the other nations of the world. So behind every uh, chaos, every hatred, every expression of murder or war or whatever, anger, whatever it may be, the devil is behind all of it. And uh, so we are at war. Uh, God declared war in the book of Genesis chapter three and verse 15. So we are at war and we are in a spiritual battle. And so now today that we've talked about all of the, how the beginning of the spiritual conflict took place, how do we defend ourselves? How do we fight against the forces of evil? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So with your Bibles open, the book of Ephesians chapter six, beginning with verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Notice several things beginning with verse 10 if you would go back to verse 10 that he's saying be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might so the strength and, and uh, power that we have to resist the devil does not come from us. It does not come from within. It comes from the Lord. He said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So it's not my strength, it's not my power, but it's the strength and power of the Lord that enables me to successfully stand against the devil and all of his forces. Notice furthermore in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God. So it is the armor of God, not my armor, not my schemes or strategy, but it's the Lord's, it's the armor of the Lord. You may recall in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, when young David uh, went to check on his brothers and discovered that Goliath and the Philistines had uh, taunted the nation of Israel uh, and uh, the soldiers of Israel were afraid to go out against him. And so uh, David uh, volunteered. He said, I'll go out against him. 
You may recall that when he agreed to do that and uh, Saul allowed him to do so, Saul took his armor and placed it on David. And David's response was, uh, I'm not used to this. This does not fit me. I cannot use this armor. So he took Saul's armor off and used what he was familiar with. And that was a sling and five smooth stones. Why five? Because the Bible tells us that Goliath had four brothers. So he only needed one stone for each of the five brothers or five, five giants. So he said, the same God who helped me to deliver me from the lion and the bear will enable me to stand up against this Philistine giant that has taunted and insulted the God of Israel. So David said, I can't use your armor. We do the same thing in our spiritual battle. We dare not and cannot use our own strength, our own ingenuity, our own armor. It is the strength and power of God. It is the armor of the Lord that we use. Notice also another thing that he says to put this on and he says it twice. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God. In other words, get dressed, get dressed for battle. He mentions it again in verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. He uses the word take up. In verse 11, it's put on, it's the same meaning. Pick up the pieces of armor and put them on. Notice also he says in verse 11 to put on the full armor of God. So don't put on just one piece. Don't just put on the helmet and think that you can do without the rest of it. Don't just take the sword without also taking all of the other pieces. Be dressed, put on the full armor of God. You remember the Greek uh, mythological uh, person Achilles and we heard the, and used the term Achilles' heel. Achilles uh, was a Greek uh, a warrior uh, who, whose mother took him by the heel when he was a child and dipped him in the river of Styx and thus made him uh, uh, invincible, so to speak, except for that one spot where she held him uh, with her hand, the heel of his foot. That was the only vulnerable part about him, and that was where he was struck with an arrow and therefore died and lost the battle. And of course, Achilles' heel is an expression that we use to this day to refer to any weak spot that we have in our body or in our character, uh, in our conduct. And so the same thing might be applied to our putting on the full armor of the Lord. Don't be satisfied uh, with just putting on one piece or two pieces. He says, put on the full armor of God. And the first piece of armor that he talks about and that we're going to focus the rest of our attention on is in verse, um, verse 13, uh, well, going to verse 14, stand firm, therefore having girded your loins or loins with truth. Girding your loins with truth. Go back with me for just a moment to verses 11 and 12. I reminded you before, but look at it again, the word against. He says five times in these two verses, 11 and 12, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This word against means more than just being opposed. 
It also uses the word violence, violently opposing. Uh, he, he, is, he hates us. The devil hates you. He hates this church. He hates me. And he is against us in a violent way. He's out to destroy us. You remember what Jesus said, that the devil had come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we fight against a vicious enemy, and yet we are able to stand firmly against him if we are fully equipped with the armor of God. And here is the first one, as I said, that he mentions uh, is the belt of truth in verse 14, having stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth. There are three basic ideas that if you have your bulletin with you that we will follow as we explain the rest of the message to you. First of all, the enemy of truth. The enemy of truth, of course, is Satan. We've already discovered that. He mentions him here in this passage of scripture. We've already looked at Genesis chapter three. The devil is against us. Jesus said he came. He's your enemy. He's your adversary. He hates you. He is here to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal and his purpose in this life and in this world. Take your Bibles, if you would, for a moment. Keep your place here at Genesis, but go back with me to the third chapter of Genesis. Uh, we'll come back to Ephesians 6 in just a moment, but go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where we see Satan's first attack against Adam and Eve and against all mankind. And uh, he raises all kinds of questions uh, because he is the enemy of truth. The Lord has already said to them, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, you say, pastor, uh, they did eat of the tree, but they didn't, they didn't die. No, not immediately. But they did, they did die immediately in their spirit. They died progressively in their soul, and they died ultimately in their bodies, and we do the same. The Bible tells us that spiritually we are dead in trespasses and sin, that the soul, which consists of the will, the intellect, and the emotion, will eventually, in a progressive way, be dead unto the Lord. And of course, the spirit is that part about us that separates us from the rest of the world and all the other animals that God created. An animal will have a soul, emotion, intellect and will, but the animal doesn't have a spirit. Man does, you do. And is that spiritual part about you that enables you to communicate with God and have fellowship with the Lord and to know him in a real and personal way. And so now here's Satan, he's in the Garden of Eden and he's tempting Adam and Eve to disobey the Lord. The first question that he raises is that he, qu he questions God's word. Look at it in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said? Oh, that's a question. Has God said? You see, the devil's goal in your life is to get you to question God, to question his goodness. Oh, the Lord knows that if you were to eat of this fruit, you would be like him. God doesn't want you to be like him. What he doesn't say here, of course, is that Adam and Eve had already been created in the image of God. And so in that sense, they were already, they had you know, a nature about them that coincided with the nature of the Lord. 
And yet now he brings into question, oh, has God said? Not only does he question God's word, but the second thing is in verse four where he denies God's word. Look at verse four, Genesis chapter three. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. So here in essence, he is calling God a liar and he is denying the word of God. You go back to the second chapter of Genesis, it's very clearly stated, God said, don't do this. Now he is saying, oh, God didn't really say that. So he not only questions the word of the Lord, but now he denies the word of the Lord. You know, there's not very much of a distance between questioning God's word and denying God's word. Then there's this third thing, and that is a substitute for God's word. Look at verse five, for God knows that in the day that you eat from, your, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now Satan substitutes the word of God with his own word. Now this is not what God says, this is what Satan says. Oh, Satan is saying, God knows when you eat of this fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you're gonna be able to see and know the difference between good and evil. So the devil is against the word of the Lord and the truth of God, and he seeks to destroy the word of the Lord. Notice the second thing. Not only the enemy of truth, who is Satan, but there's the essence of truth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, notice in, in John chapter one and verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and what's that next word? And truth, full of grace and truth. Now in John chapter one, verse 14, when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's a, that's a reference to the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God. The word, whenever time, anytime you find the word, W-O-R-D, in the Bible, spelled with a capital W, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus. The Bible is the written word of the Lord. Jesus is the living word of the Lord. He is God in the flesh. And so he was born in Bethlehem of Judea to mother, Mary, and then of course a foster father. But uh, he was born uh, and he was the incarnation of truth. Uh, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us. He lived among the people for 30 years. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The term only begotten means the only one unique of a kind. There are not two kinds of individuals in existence that are like Jesus. Jesus is unique. He is one and the only one, the only begotten one of God. He is God in the flesh, his name Emmanuel, God being with us. So he's God in the flesh. And when he came, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And so he is the essence, his very nature is that of truth. You know, God is the standard of truth. He is the standard by which we measure all other truth. The word truth means what is real, what is genuine, what is reliable, what is trustworthy. 
And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 that it is impossible for God to lie. So God cannot and does not and will not lie. He is truth. Jesus Christ, his son, is the total embodiment of truth. He is truth incarnate. Now you go back to John chapter 8 and verse 44, back up under the first idea of the enemy of truth being Satan, it says, when Jesus was talking to the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, you are your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. So why is Jesus saying that you are of your father, the devil? Because what did the devil do? He murdered Adam and Eve. He, murdered, he caused Cain and Abel to rise up and, and, uh, and, and slay one another, or at least uh, uh, Cain did, of his brother Abel. So uh, Satan was a murderer. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. But then he goes on to say he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He's talking about the devil now. There's no truth in the devil. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, from his own heart, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil is a liar, and I believe that every lie that we are tempted to speak gets its inspiration from the devil himself. I think it's just the devil is saying, yeah, tell him that lie. Don't tell him the truth. And so the devil is a liar, but God isn't. It's impossible for God to tell a lie. Jesus is the incarnate of truth. But then now notice the third thing, and that is the expression of truth. The expression of truth, of course, has to do with you and with me. And by expression, I mean being able to live out truth, to live in truth, to be true ourselves, to what we know to be the truth of God, and to express that in our everyday conduct. I guess if we could sum uh, summarize verse, uh, the uh, third point, the expression of truth being the believer. If we could summarize all that I wanted to say in this passage of scripture, we would use the word integrity, the word integrity, because that's what the truth is. The, the word integrity comes from uh, another word, uh, uh, integer, integer. Integer in mathematics is, is a reference to a whole number. And so integrity refers to the whole person, everything about you being truthful. And we're going to look at four ways that we are to exempt and express this truthfulness, this integrity, being honest, being ethical, and being consistent in it. Not being hypocritical, but being real and genuine and trustworthy in who we are and what we are. So how do we, with the Lord Jesus living in us, express and live out integrity and truth in our lives. I suggest four ways to you. First of all, to know the truth, to know the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the Bible says, and I'm reading these from the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation says, work hard so God can approve you. That is so that God can put his stamp of approval on you. Be a good worker one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Now, what is the word of truth? Right here, the book we call the Bible. I believe this book to be the word of God. I believe this book to be the truth of God. I don't believe that there are any errors in this book. I believe from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. I believe even some of the maps are inspired. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding there. 
But from Genesis to Revelation, this is the divinely inspired word of God. It is truth. I don't question this book. I may not understand all of it. It's not what I don't understand that bothers me. It's what I do understand. Because a lot of the things that I understand here, I don't do. And that's a sin. But I believe the Bible is the word of God. And I believe the only way that I can know the word of God is for me to read it, for me to study it, for me to meditate upon it, for me to memorize it, hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. Notice he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, work hard. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, it's the word be diligent. To be diligent means you put all that you've got into it. And so I wonder how many times we really put all that we have into the reading and the studying and meditating upon the word of the Lord. You remember Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of the sinner nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law he meditates day and night. Do you meditate on the word of God day and night? Do you read just one verse of scripture a day? Maybe try to memorize just one verse in your entire life. Do you have one favorite verse of scripture that you love and that you try to abide by and live by? Know the word of truth. Take your Bibles, keep them placed there at Ephesians, but uh, go with me over to the book of 2 Timothy. Over in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Now go back to verse 16 for a moment. All scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired means God breathed. It's the idea, if you could imagine for a moment, uh, think about little David before he became king. What was he? He was a shepherd. And he would keep sheep. Remember when Samuel went down to uh, the house where uh, his father lived and he, he said, you know, uh, do you, how many sons do you have? And he paraded all the sons before him. He was looking for a replacement to take uh, Saul's place. And uh, when Samuel saw the sons, he said, surely this is the one. And he said, no. I don't judge man by his outward appearance. I look upon the heart. So where's, do you have any others? Yes, I've got one. He's back on the back 40. He's, he's keeping the sheep. He's a little shepherd boy. David wrote many of the songs, set to music. He had probably had a flute that he would play. The flute would be nothing more than a piece of wood with some holes in it until he held it to his lips and blew his breath into it. And that flute would come alive with music. That's the meaning behind this word of the scripture being inspired by God. It is God breathed. He took the men who wrote the book we call the Bible and the Holy Spirit breathed into them the living word of God. This book is alive with the spirit of God. That's why when you pick it up and you read it, it convicts your heart. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder. So it's a sharp book because it's a live book. When J.B. Phillips was paraphrasing the New Testament, he says in his uh, preface that when he began translating the scriptures, it was like trying to rewire the house with electricity still on. Every time he touched a wire, it just shocked him. And he says, the word of God just shocks you. It's alive and it convicts you of your sin. 
when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he may have been tempted with other things, but there are three of them that are recorded in the fourth chapter of the, of the book of Matthew. The first one was when Satan came to him, he says, look, and I'm paraphrasing it here. He said, you've been out here for 40 days and 40 nights. You're bound to be hungry. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. What was our Lord's response? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When that didn't work, he took him up to the top of the temple, the pinnacle. He said, jumped off. You know, the devil knows scripture too. He says to the Jesus, it's written that God has given the angels charge over you. You're not gonna stump your toe. So if you jump off this pinnacle, you can do something spectacular. Look at all the people that's gonna to come to you because you've razzled, dazzled the eyes of the people. And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He used the scriptures to counterattack the temptation. The third temptation was, of course, that the devil paraded all the nations of the world before him and told Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations of the earth. He has the power to do so. He's the prince and God of this world, spelled with a little g. He's not spelled with a big g. There's only one God. But the devil is called the prince of the air, prince of this world, uh, and, the, and the small God. And so when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, I, I believe they forfeited their right to supervise the world. Remember, God put them in the Garden of Eden to till the soil and to cultivate the soil and take control of nature and run nature. They forfeited that when they disobeyed the Lord. When you come to the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, John sees uh, the Lamb of God sitting on the throne as one slain before the foundation of the world. He has a scroll in his hand. What is that scroll? I believe it's the title deed to this world, to the universe. And when Jesus died on the cross, he gained it all back. He holds the title deed. Someday, all the enemies of the world are going to be sitting at his footstool. And so uh, uh, when the devil paraded all the nations of the world before him, said, uh, you will just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all of these nations. Jesus responded by saying, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you worship. And so I'm saying to you, this book is powerful. And if you'll know this book, when you're tempted to do wrong, when the devil tempts you and leads you, deceives you to do something that is sinful, you can take the word of the Lord and defeat him. But you've got to know the word of God. Hide it in your heart that you might not sin against the Lord. Notice the second thing, not only to know the word and the truth, but to think the truth. Think the truth. Look at Philippians 4.8 in the New Living Translation. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Fix your thought means to discipline your mind. Discipline your, your thinking. You, you know, the only thoughts that can come into your mind are those that you allow to come into your mind. Your mind is like a computer. The only thing that can come out of a computer is what you've put into that computer. And your mind is the same way. Whatever you focus your mind on, whatever you concentrate on, whatever you fix your mind on, it comes into your mind and it becomes a part of you. And so that's why Paul is saying, whatever is good and holy and lovable, think about these things, concentrate these things. Over in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 13, there's a phrase that says, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind, 1 Peter 1, 13. Prepare your mind for action. You're at war. I told you the other day, I believe that the battlefield for spiritual warfare is your mind. Where does temptation enter? Where does temptation come from? How, how do you become tempted? It's in your mind. 
the devil comes to your mind and he puts these thoughts. That's what he did in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, has God said? God didn't mean what he said. He, subject, he, he put all of these thoughts, negative thoughts, into the mind of Eve, deceived her and tricked her into disobeying God. He does the same thing for you. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be you not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. So guard your mind, fix your mind. Let me take you back to the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians chapter 4, we quoted verse 8 for you for just a moment, but there's more to it. Listen to this. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of a good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So think on, train your mind to think on and concentrate on what is good and positive and wholesome and lovely and pure. So think the truth as well. Then number three. Not only to know the truth and think the truth, but speak the truth. In the book of Ephesians 4.25, the New Living Translation, so put away all falsehood and tell your neighbor the truth because we belong to each other. So speak the truth. This goes back to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus and one of the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie about your neighbor. Be truthful. Make sure that what comes out of your mouth about your neighbor is good and wholesome and positive. And don't gossip. Don't spread lies. Don't spread rumors. Love your neighbor and speak truthful to them and about them. So speak the truth. And then in Ephesians 4.15 it says, speak truth in love. Speak truth in love. In the book of Proverbs, in the sixth chapter, verses 16 and 17 and verse 19, Solomon says there are seven things that the Lord despises and seven things that are an abomination unto him. Two of those say, you shall not speak a lie and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. To have a lying tongue is an abomination unto the Lord. It is a sin unto him. In the book of Acts, which is a record of the first century church, the first sin that was judged was the sin of lying. In the fifth chapter of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, who saw Barnabas sell a piece of land, give the money to the church and say distribute it among the poor, and all the recognition that he got, and Priscilla and Aquila decided they'd do the same thing. And so they went out and sold a piece of land for a certain price, lied about what they had sold it for, gave only a portion of it to the church. And when they walked in, Ananias uh, uh, said, you know, here's my offering. The Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. He said, why have you lied? You've not lied to me. You've not lied to man. You've lied to God. And struck him dead just like that. Just, just like that. He just dropped dead. Aquila, his wife, came in just a little short time after that. She lied also. Struck her dead. Well, what if, what if the Lord did that for us today? You tell a lie to God, 
You say you're going to do something, I think we'd have to turn the bottom floor uh, into a mortuary. <laughs> or like Pinocchio, where your nose would grow so long every time you told a lie. Most of us would be fighting to get on the back seat because our noses would come all the way down. Oh, well. Reminds me of the lady who came during the invitation to the pastor and said, Pastor, I've been convicted about my tongue. been telling lies and opposite. I want to lay my tongue on the altar. He said, you can't. The altar's not that long. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. The fourth and final thing is live the truth. Second John 4, New Living Translation. How happy I was to meet some of your children and to find them living in the truth just as we had been commanded by the Father, like Father, like Son, to live the truth. You have the King James Version of the Bible it says walk in the truth. Walking means, of course, living. It doesn't talk about physical walking down a sidewalk or a street. Just living the truth. You live the truth. The word sincere, we talk about people being sincere. The word, I like to trace the history of words, and the word sincere goes back to a Latin term, sincerus. Sin, S-I-N-E, serus. And it goes back to the practice in the days when um, pottery, uh, they, would, they would mold uh, their pottery and out of clay and they would sell it. If there was a flaw, if there was a crack in the pottery that had been made, they would take beeswax and they would fill the crack with beeswax to cover up the crack. And then they would sell it. Uh, where, and, and you couldn't see just by the naked eye that there was a crack in the piece of pottery. If you found a piece of pottery that had the Latin term sensuris written on it, then you know this was the genuine thing. There were no flaws. There were no cracks in that. And the word sincere means that in your character, there's no flaw. There are no cracks in your character. You live the truth. You live the truth. So the expression of truth as the believer, know the truth, think the truth, speak the truth, and live the truth. Go back with me for this closing thought in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. It says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13 says, therefore, take up the full armor. Both of them meaning the same thing, put it on. In other words, God provides the armor but it depends on you to put it on. The image here is that of war. There's probably a Roman soldier chained to the, to the apostle Paul as he writes this because in verse 19, he talks about his chains. So he's a prisoner. And the different pieces of armor that he's describing here is that of the Roman soldier. And this is a belt that's put around the Roman soldier. Can you imagine today for a private to be in the army and a general walking up to him and say, son, let me help you put on your armor. You mind if I, you just sit down, let me help you put on your shoes and I'll tie them for you. Let me help you put on your breeches and your shirt and your helmet. That's unbelievable. A general doesn't do that. When you're in the army, you are expected, commanded to put on your armor. 
Put on your shoes. Put on your clothes. Put on your helmet. Get out your gun. Put it on. And God is saying, here's the armor, and it's my strength. And as the Bible says, the battle is the Lord's. It's not yours. It's his. He provides the weapons and the equipment. But you've got to put it on. And you've got to use it. May we bow together. We're in the army. An expression, Lord, that you've heard a lot of people say during the history of the world. But there's never been any greater truth than for us to say and to realize and become enlisted in the greatest war that mankind has ever known about or ever will know about. And that's the spiritual warfare that we deal with on a daily basis. And there's encouragement, there's hope. For as the Bible says, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. That of course is speaking about the Holy Spirit who resides in the heart and life of every born again believer. And the devil that's in the world can be defeated and will be defeated ultimately. And every day as we are involved in this spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle, and we go to battle, we put on the armor every morning when we wake up and we strap on the belt of truth and it holds us together. And we can be more than conquerors through him that loved us because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And as we come to this time of invitation, the devil is here and he's going to be speaking to the people who are here, all of us, to myself included. He's going to keep us and try to deceive us and mislead us and to keep us from doing what we know you want us to do. There's somebody here today who perhaps needs to be saved. They need to turn their lives over to the Lord Jesus, accept him as their Savior and Lord. And I pray in the name of Jesus that, Lord, you'll keep him from interfering with anyone who needs to make that kind of a decision. There are Christians here today, Father, who've been living in a fleshly way and have allowed self to remain upon the throne instead of the Lord Jesus. We know that we're still children when we do that, but we're disobedient. Forgive us when we quench you and grieve you. May we come likewise in a repentant spirit to your throne of grace, ask for forgiveness and for renewal of your strength in our lives, that when we are tempted, we can be victorious. We pray now in the name of Christ that you'll be honored through the invitation that we extend. For it's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Would you stand with me please? And if God is leading you to make a decision, please come.